Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast. You know what? You probably should insert some really hip, really cool music here because we don't have any really hip, really cool music on this podcast. But what we do have is news you're not going to easily find anywhere else. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine infantryman and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas and who was a big-time history buff even before that, I care a lot about our military. Where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be on the horizon, because these things matter. So if you're a military member, a spouse of a military member, or a parent or grandparent of a military member, this is probably a great show for you to subscribe to. I'll keep you updated on foreign policy issues, but I won't do it like you'll find everywhere else. First of all, the media almost never covers the military or looming hotspots. And if they do, they overhype everything. And they scare you and use lots of B-real video with explosions and flashing graphics. Their biggest desire is eyeballs and ad dollars. I promise you, and you can check the past year of archived editions, I do not overhype, exaggerate, or do any of that. If anything, I almost downplay It's a steady and calm voice that you'll find here. On the flip side, foreign policy journals that do cover what we do also fall way short, in my opinion. Their articles are far too long. They're far too dense, and they're crammed with big words, technical mumbo-jumbo, and silly acronyms that only insiders even know. I couldn't find a show that met my needs and that met the needs of a large community of Americans, so I decided to create one. Once a week, I'll discuss military matters while also adding in a little motivation, wisdom, and history. Besides covering this news and also trying to build you up and encourage you with plenty of motivation at the end of each episode, I also work as hard as I can to unite this country. Without question, I feel like our wide division and animosity toward those with whom we disagree is the greatest threat our country faces. So once a week, I do my best to bridge this great divide while also reminding each of us that most of us are being played by divisive politicians and broadcast hosts who are ripping apart this great country just so they can reach a higher office or gain more followers and add dollars. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. While we face great challenges as a country, America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today, beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. And with that out of the way, let's get started. Oh, and if you want to, insert some more really hip, really cool music in your head, because apparently that's the only way you can have a successful podcast these days. This is the December 22nd edition of The View from the Front. We're really glad to have you here. I want to start by wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, since I won't talk to you again until afterward. So I hope you get to be with family and friends. I hope you have a wonderful chance to be around them and exchange gifts and obviously remember the real reason for Christmas, but also really cherish and value the time you get to spend with your family. 
It's especially hitting me this year because, as I've said, I think it was probably four or five episodes ago, my beautiful mother is dealing with some stage four liver cancer, so we'll definitely accept any prayers that you want to throw up toward that as well. So in this edition, we'll be discussing uh, several topics, and I think these are going to really interest you and almost guarantee you haven't seen them in the news. So... First one, I'm going to do a wrap-up for two or for uh, 2022 with six of what I think are the biggest foreign policy stories for 2022, and I almost guarantee you're not aware of the last one, which is probably almost one of the bigger ones. So I'm going to start the show with that. also want to cover something that barely made the news. The CIA director did an interview with PBS, and it had like an impressive amount of news regarding many of the topics we've been covering, including... Uh, uh, especially the war in Ukraine against Russia and what he sees there, the growing threat of an invasion of Taiwan by China, what his views are on that. So the CIA director doesn't do many interviews, and um, I watched the interview, studied the transcript, so I'm going to bring you part of that. I also will be covering the, Z- the Zelensky visit to America. Of course, he's the Ukrainian president. I know many of you already saw that news, but I just want to point out three really interesting things from that visit that maybe you didn't see. Then I want to go into just a remarkable bit of reporting from the New York Times and the Washington Post regarding the invasion of Ukraine. And they both did really in-depth reporting on two different military units. And it's almost like neither had the idea that both were trying to do the same thing. But I want to go into both of those just a bit to show just how poorly the Russian soldiers were, were prepped, equipped, and prepared for like the horrific fighting that they were about to do. And then finally, we'll cover um, some news out of Iran, which is kind of tragic, but I think it really illustrates what's happening there. And I, it's very, it was insightful for me. I think you'll get a lot from that. And then, as always, we'll end with our motivation and wisdom section, which is arguably the best part of the show. So thanks for joining us. Let's just get started. One of the things that I wanted to do in this episode was kind of do a review of the year. And so I came up with what I think are six of the biggest stories. Hopefully I did not forget any of them. But let's just kind of work through the list. So these are six of the biggest stories that are, you know, foreign policy type decisions that affected the world in 2022. I didn't put them in order. Maybe I should have. But... I will begin with the first one, and maybe kind of glancing at the list, maybe they kind of are in order, but I guess you could debate the order. But number one, I've got Russia invaded Ukraine. Obviously, that was huge news in February. We're still dealing with that. So I'm going to say that's number one. I don't think anything would top that. Number two, I've got um, Finland and Sweden applies to join NATO. And they do that to protect themselves from Russia, and that's a little difficult for Putin to explain, because one of the reasons that he used as an excuse for invading Ukraine was a desire to halt NATO's eastward expansion. So if Finland and Sweden join, then Russia's border with NATO actually doubles in, in size and length. Um, currently, Turkey is holding up the applications, but I still think there's a chance that will eventually go through. 
next story I had listed was Queen Elizabeth II died. Just a reminder, that was obviously huge news. She was 96, had been 70 years on the throne. Um, 250,000 people walked past her coffin um, as she lay in state. So that was pretty big news for sure. Uh, Number four, I've got Xi Jinping secures a third term as China's leader. I think everyone expected him to, but the reality is is that really only he controls what this will mean for Taiwan and world peace in the years to come. We'll see how that plays out. Next one, I've got the Iranian situation where the death of in custody of Masa Amini, which has sparked those huge protests. Amini was arrested by the morality police for wearing her hijab improperly. She died after being beaten. There's been protest ever since, and we're now four months into that, and we still don't really know how that's going to end. And then the last one is probably the least discussed and could be one of the bigger ones in years to come. I'll call it the Awakening of Japan. There was news that broke in the past week that they are going to buy between 400 to 500 Tomahawk missiles from the United States. Now, these things aren't cheap. They're amazing. They fly low. They're hard to shoot down. They can program to be GPS target targeted. We've used them for almost decades, I'd say. I think I think 20 years, but definitely more than 10 to 15. It's been one of the primary weapons of the U.S., and they want to have a defensive capability in case North Korea or China were to attack some of its forces. They want to be able to send in waves of these missiles. But more than that, they also in the past week deployed two F-15 fighters to the Philippines to help supplement their defenses as part of a military drill that is unprecedented and has not happened since World War II. Japan's constitution after World War II says it can only act in defense, but Japan has been edging away from that because they are afraid that China will begin to gobble up some of the territory, like the South Sea and near China, and other small countries such as Taiwan, and so Japan does not want to wait for you know, until Japan is the last one standing, so to speak. And so they are increasingly uh, upping their budget and taking more proactive measures to show China that they will not stand aside while some of this aggression happens. And, in fact, they now plan to set their defense spending, which has been very minor in the past, to to the NATO benchmark, which is 2% of gross domestic product. And if they do that next year, which they are expected to do, it just needs to pass, and it is expected to pass, because increasingly Japan's population supports these measures because they see the threat. They've seen North Korea fire missiles over the islands. Um, So 2% would put Japan as the third largest military budget in the world. Again, I don't think anyone's really considered this, but Japan next year will have the third largest military budget in the world. I want to put this in context a bit. Currently, the order of spending is United States, 
China, India, the UK, Russia, France, Germany, Saudi Arabia. And then number nine on that list is Japan. But next year, Japan is going to spend more than Russia, more than France, more than Germany, more than India, more than the UK. Japan will spend so much money that it will be just below China. So they are taking this threat from China very serious, and they're not going to stand back and hope that China just leaves them alone. So that is the last story in my year in review that I wanted to bring up, and they're coming in late. That's All of this is just happening at the end of the year. It's barely made the news, but this will start to make the news more and more next year. I can almost guarantee it, and so I wanted to include it in the list. So there you go. That is my list of six of the biggest stories for 2022 that probably your friends don't know half of those, but you do. As I talked about at the beginning of the show, I wanted to cover an interview with the CIA director that PBS did. It had just, like I said, just an impressive amount of news about what's happening in Ukraine, what's potentially going to happen in Taiwan with China. And so I don't know why this didn't make more news. Maybe it's partly because PBS did it, but this is beyond insightful. So let's dig into it just a bit. The interview with PBS, which had just some incredible nuggets in it, is with the current CIA director. His name is William Joseph Burns. And he's served there since March 19th, 2021, under President Joe Biden as the CIA director. And I wanted to just briefly cover his background before we get into those nuggets, just briefly, just because it's actually pretty impressive. Uh, He was uh, Deputy Secretary of State from 2011 to 2014, so that's like the second highest position in the Secretary of State. He spent 32 years in in the State Department. Before that, actually, though, he was Ambassador to Jordan from 1998 to 2001. He was an Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs from 2001 to 2005, Very importantly, he was ambassador to Russia from 2005 to 2008. And then he was an undersecretary of state for political affairs from 2008 to 2011. But the thing I wanted to mention, which is, I did just a little research on this because it's kind of crazy. He was unanimously confirmed by voice vote in 2021 on March 18th. And that is just unbelievable that anything in the Senate would be unanimous. And I went back to the two previous, and I could have gone further back to Petraeus and some other CIA directors, but let's go back to the one previous to him, Gina Haspel under Trump. She got out of the committee by a 10 to 5 vote, and she was confirmed by the full Senate 54 to 45. Again, that's 54 to 45. I mean, that's that's barely getting in. That's If you're a bill in the Senate, you don't even get passed. It takes 60 votes. So she got in 54-45. That was Gina Haspel. Her previous CIA director before her, this was also under Trump, Mike Pompeo. I'm sure you all remember him. 
he was confirmed 66-32. So a little bit better, 66-32. If he was a bill in the Senate, he would have passed. William Joseph Burns. 32 years in a diplomatic career, basically 40-plus years of service in the government. And watching this interview, he's a very calm and respectful, and obviously someone who's been in the State Department that long does not step on many toes. William Joseph Burns was unanimously approved in the Senate. I don't. I still don't know how that happens. I don't know how you don't get like someone like a Ted Cruz or you know the Kentucky Senator Rand Paul or how how does someone not oppose him for some reason? I really do not know. Literally unanimously confirmed by voice vote in 2021. So I wanted to set that up before we get into these nuggets because uh, I'm just still kind of blown away by that, honestly. The nuggets I want to highlight for this interview primarily involve Russia and China. These are two topics we've covered a ton for weeks and weeks and weeks now. More like months and months and months. But I hadn't seen a interview with a CIA director. He doesn't do these very often. And so this is, uh, this is the head of our intelligence bureaus telling us what he and all of the hundreds and thousands of analysts under him believe. First question from Judy Woodruff. She was asking about whether the U.S. and the support from the West and Europe can outlast Putin. And I wanted to share the answer from William Burns, but her question was, question was, but the cost, and this is in the middle of an interview, I've got the link in the source notes, but she says, but the cost to the United States, weaponry, weaponry, ammunition, the Europeans, and what they're sacrificing for this war to go on, you're not concerned that he, he being Putin, could outlast all of that. This is William Burns' answer. I don't underestimate for a moment the burdens, the challenges that this war poses for Ukrainians, first and foremost, but for all of us who support Ukraine. But strategically, I think in many ways, Putin's war has thus far been a failure for Russia. The Russian military has performed poorly and suffered huge losses. The Russian economy has suffered long-term damage. Most of the progress that the Russian middle class has made over the last 30 years is being destroyed. I think Russia's reputation has been badly undermined, and its weaknesses have been exposed. The Russian population seems increasingly uneasy about the costs of the war as well. The fact that Putin, when he launched at the end of September a partial mobilization, the reality was that more Russians of military age fled the country, then he was able to round up and send to the front. So he's got a lot of challenges as well. Judy Woodruff then says, that all may be the case, but he seems perfectly secure. I mean, all of those economic hits that the Russians took, the sanctions, the country still charging along, still functioning, and he, I mean, do you see any real threat to his position? I thought this was an interesting answer as well. William Burns answers, well, I think there's an unease across the Russian population right now. There's unease from some more hawkish critics who are 
who see the conduct of the war as being flawed. And then you have the unease I mentioned before of lots of Russians of military age, young Russian men fleeing the country as well. So I'm not trying to suggest that that poses an immediate threat to his grip on power. He's created a very secure and repressive authoritarian regime in his eyes. But I think you're beginning to see increasing unease in Russia about the war and an accumulation of damage to the Russian economy and to Russians' future, which is going to take a toll over time. Judy Woodruff also asked during the interview about the potential use of nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons. My long-term listeners know that this is an issue that for months I have harped on and I've done my best to tamp down because I felt like the media has tried to overhype this for ratings and to scare Americans. And it's bad enough that they did it for ratings, but it's bad because it created the idea in many Americans' head that Ukraine should just immediately negotiate. And so it hurt the support for Ukraine. It hurt the Ukrainian war effort, in my opinion. So I've not been super happy about that. And I've said all along that I did not believe that there's a very much of a chance at all that Russia would do this. William Burns addresses this in his answer when she asked about that. And here was his answer. Well, I think the saber-rattling is meant to intimidate. We don't see any clear evidence today of plans to use tactical nuclear weapons. We have made very clear, the president has made very clear to the Russians what the serious risks of that would be. I think it's also been very useful that Xi Jinping, which is, of course, the president of China, and Prime Minister Modi, who's, of course, of India. So Prime Minister Modi in India have also raised their concerns about use of nuclear weapons as well. I think that's also having an impact on the Russians. So another answer there that has is basically confirming, again, many of the things I've said throughout the months and months of deal, of, deal, of doing these podcasts. And as I've said in the past, I honestly think even if Putin tried to use them, I think we're in contact with some people. I think we're watching some things. I think we would intervene. I'm not even convinced the guy could if he wanted to. So we've seen his military. It's almost incompetent. Let's move to the next item. She brings up a great question. She says, the other thing that we have seen in the last weeks is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, General Milley, is speaking about winter may be a time for negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. How do you see that? William Burns, most conflicts end in negotiations, but that requires a seriousness on the part of the Russians in this instance that I don't think we see. At least it's not our assessment that the Russians are serious at this point about a real negotiation. So, there you go. Now, let's move to China. A couple quick things on China. Judy Woodruff. Do you believe there are near-term ambitions on his part being Xi Jinping to take over Taiwan? And I mean in the next year or so. William Burns. Yes. I'm not sure I would measure it in terms of months or a year, but I would not underestimate for a moment, nor do any of my colleagues here at CIA underestimate, his ambition to control Taiwan in other words, to unify Beijing and Taiwan on the PRC's terms, which is the People's Republic of China. He's insisted publicly that his preference is to do, do that by means short of the use of force. 
but we know that he's also instructed his military leadership to be ready by 2027 to launch a war. And so I think the honest answer is, the further you get into this decade, the greater the risk of a military conflict. Now, as the long-term, uh, long-time re- listeners know, we've talked about 2027. That's come up in some intelligence um, briefings to the Senate in the past. We've talked about that. So he mentions that. One final thing that I wanted to share about the interview. Judy Rudolph, apologies. Judy Woodruff says, What is your sense of urgency about all this? Uh, my colleague speak, spoke this week with the head of Indo-Pacific Command, and he spoke about it being urgent. William Burns, yes. No, no, I share that sense of urgency as well. And we have no higher priority at CIA than not just Taiwan, but the longer-term geopolitical challenge that Xi's China poses. And we have, over the course of the two years I have been director, established a new mission center, which is sort of the organizational building block at CIA. It's the only single-country mission center we have focused on China. And we have moved resources, people, priority in that direction because it's a global competition. So there you go. That's what uh, I wanted to share from that interview. Clearly, lots of good info about Russia and the near-term issues regarding the war in Ukraine. But also, as we've talked in previous episodes, there's kind of the looming China thing, which is a much bigger potential threat than the situation in Russia, at least long-term speaking. So that's the interview I wanted to share. And... um, I think the only other thing I'll say is that the COVID stuff in China could potentially um, damage, to at least a small degree, Xi's plans for Taiwan. I think, as I've said a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, I think the um, number of deaths that are going to happen from COVID in China are going to rock that country, so... There you go. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing, but you can sign up for free at my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you never miss any future episodes. Again, that's free. I will also say that people are are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books in some series that they love sooner than what I'm currently doing. Believe me, the best way to support me or this show is by signing up for a paid subscription at my Substack page. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or you can sign up to support at Patreon. Again, that's Patreon. Or you can also find me on Venmo at Author Stan R. Mitchell. Again, that's Author Stan R. Mitchell. And I have links to both of those in the source notes or on my Substack page, which again is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Either of those options, if you're wanting to pay, are $5 per month. And you can cancel those at any time. The paid subscriptions provide a recurring monthly revenue, and that $5 a month is the fastest way that I'll be able to return to becoming a full-time author again, which means I'll have more time to write fiction, it'll have 
I'll have more time to cover the news even more in depth, and I'll be able to work even harder to try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things that I feel drawn to do, like strongly drawn to do. So, of course, you can also tell people about the podcast, and there's even the option to give a gift subscription to a friend. You guys can also clearly tell people about my books, which many of you are already doing, and I appreciate each and every one of you doing that. But I do want to be very clear here. You don't have to do any of these things. I truly feel called to do this, and I've already had tremendous support from people who've signed up to chip in a few bucks each month. You guys know who you are. I really do appreciate you. So trust me, you can sign up, come and go as you like. If you want to subscribe for a couple of three months, that's great. You can do that. As long as I'm making enough to cover the time I put into doing this show, then I'm not going anywhere. I love highlighting the sacrifices of our military. I love trying to unify the country. I love throwing cold water on these over-the-top exaggerations by extremist politicians and broadcasters. And honestly, I love knowing that I'm helping motivate and reach out to people who just need a little extra encouragement each week. So thanks so much for your support. And with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the show. Let's move to the Zelensky visit to America. And like I said earlier, there are three really interesting things from that visit that I wanted to bring up. One of them was I wanted to share a couple of uh, parts from an Associated Press article. I'm going to read, let me read this first paragraph. Uh, the headline of the article is Zelensky thanks every American and sees a turning point. And the turning point he sees is next year. But let me read this paragraph. In a joint news conference with Biden, Zelensky was pressed on how Ukraine would try to bring an end to the conflict. He rejected Biden's framing of a, quote, just peace, end quote, saying, Quote, for me as a president, just peace is no compromises. Zelensky said the war would end once Ukraine's sovereignty, freedom, and territorial integrity were restored and Russia had paid back Ukraine for all the damage inflicted by its forces. I also wanted to share part of the article that includes a quote from the Senate's top Republican uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, who of course has led the Republicans for quite a while now and um, basically speaks pretty much for the party. What he wants done in the Senate, he gets done. Uh, as you guys know, former President Trump often opposed some of McConnell's decisions and some of the things that McConnell wants. Pres uh, former President Trump often trashes him, but Sen Senator uh, McConnell actually still gets things done regularly and seems to have a firm control of the Republican con uh, Republican Senate. Maybe minus four votes or so, but I, I don't want to get into political discourse. But let me read this paragraph because uh, there are the next two or three sentences, just because it will be McConnell who decides in the next year or so how much funding Ukraine does or does not get. Here's the paragraph. The Senate's top Republican, Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell, said, quote, The most basic reasons for continuing to help Ukraine degrade and defeat the Russian invaders are cold, hard, practical American interests. He said, McConnell said, Defeating Russia's aggression will help 
prevent further security crises in Europe. So there you go. That's kind of the harsh truth of it. I know a lot of people see some of the support as almost um, too too generous or too almost like charity. But the reality is is that for a for pennies on the dollar, American support is helping not only give the Ukrainians freedom, it's helping destroy the Russian military and Putin's ability to basically throw his weight around. And then I wanted to, on this final point on this topic, I wanted to read one part from the transcript of Zelensky's speech. Here's his speech. He says, When I was in Bakhmut yesterday, our heroes gave me the flag, the battle flag, the flag of those who defend Ukraine, Europe, and the world at the cost of their lives. They asked me to bring this flag to you, to the U.S. Congress, to members of the House of Representatives and Senators whose decisions can save millions of people. So let these decisions be taken. Let this flag stay with you, ladies and gentlemen. This flag is a symbol of our victory in this war. We stand, we fight, and we will win because we are united. Ukraine, America, and the entire free world. I thought that was pretty powerful and most certainly worth sharing. So that was the main takeaways I took from his visit but definitely wanted to do a quick wrap-up of those in case you didn't see the speech. I watched the speech. It was an amazing speech. There are parts that are just slightly hard to understand because he does have an accent, and English is not his first language, but to give that much, that speech with such short notice it was very powerful. Uh, I read that you know he had literally been on the front line in Bakhmut. There's photos of it. Then they had put him on train, got him across the border to Poland. He had flown here, you know, ever how long it takes to fly here, seven hours probably, six, seven hours. Uh, I know it's further than just Europe because he came all the way from Poland. Arrives, has to give that speech to Biden, or not to speech, he meets with Biden. Then he has to go give that speech. It was topped out on paper, and I'm sure he has assistance, but I'm also sure that if he'd had a little more time that there were some parts of it he might have polished up just a tad more, but... What a hero. What an incredible... I mean, to carry the weight of that nation and to... to Just everything that he's done is just... It's really something else. He puts a lot of leaders to shame, for sure. Let's move now to that bit of dual reporting that I teased in the beginning of the show from the New York Times and the Washington Post that talked about the invasion of Ukraine. And like I said, it's almost like they were working on... The same story, but with different units, because neither knew what the other was doing. But they both highlight a few things and reinforce some things and confirm some things about how like poorly prepped and equipped and prepared these Russian soldiers were for this horrific fighting that they didn't even know was going to happen. So let me just begin with the New York Times one. The New York Times article is based on uh, satellite and communication intercepts, documents that were obtained by prisoners. They've actually spoken to some of the Russian soldiers that have returned home. And I wanted to share kind of the summary, and then I'd like to read part of that, and then kind of wrap this part up. 
the article talks about how Russian soldiers have been going into battle with very little food, very few bullets, literally instructions that were grabbed from Wikipedia on how to use the weapons that they barely know how to even handle. Um, they're using maps that are really old, and they have an example of one that's from the 1960s that was recovered um, from the battlefield. And in some cases, they have no maps at all. And they also are speaking on open cell phone lines, which are obviously intercepted, and that reveals their position. And the Ukrainians are listening in on some of this, and they're hearing about the disarray that's happening in their ranks. But I wanted to read this one part from the article that is just almost gripping. It starts with a single sentence. They never had a chance. So here it is. They never had a chance. Fumbling blindly through cratered farms, the troops from Russia's 155th Naval Infantry Brigade had no maps, medical kits, or working walkie-talkies, they said. Just a few weeks earlier, they had been factory workers and truck drivers, watching an endless showcase of supposed Russian military victories at home on state television before being drafted in September. One medic was a former barista who had never had any medical training. Now, they were piled onto the tops of overcrowded armored vehicles, lumbering through fallow autumn fields with Kalishnikov rifles from half a century ago and virtually nothing to eat, they said. Russia had been at war most of the year, yet its army seemed less prepared than ever. In interviews, members of the brigade said some of them had barely fired a gun before and described having almost no bullets anyway, let alone air cover or artillery. But it didn't frighten them too much, they said. They would never see combat, their commanders had promised. Only when the shells began crashing around them, ripping their comrades to pieces, did they realize how badly they had been duped. So the article goes into this, uh, obviously they did some interviews with some survivors of this battle, and none of these folks had any idea they were going into battle. So, I mean, that is just crazy to read about. And then further down, I just wanted to give kind of a uh, what ended up happening to these folks. So of the unit that they were discussing of this platoon, of the 60 members, and it was near a U Ukrainian town called Pavlivka. So of the 60 members near Pavlivka, 40 were killed. 40. And only 8 ended up escaping serious injury. And... One of the survivors said, this isn't war, it's the destruction of the Russian people by their own commanders. So again, it's the destruction of the Russian people by their own commanders. I also wanted to detail one other part of the article that's almost haunting. And so the article is very long, but it, de it details and kind of tracks the life of one of them named Alexander. And he'd been drafted in September with three close childhood friends. And he and another suffered concussions from the fighting from artillery. One lost both legs. One of them is missing. So two of them got concussions. One lost both legs. The fourth is missing. 
But he tells the New York Times that when he's discharged from the hospital, he fully expects to return to Ukraine and would do so willingly. So this is after everything that's happened to these guys. One guy missing, one losing two legs, two with concussions. They've been lied to about whether they were even going into combat. They were barely provided with anything from maps, ammo, or anything. Despite all of that, and despite the having seen the state media beforehand about these massive victories, which he's now realized never happened, this is his remark to the New York Times. And I think, they cha- I think this was one of them they changed the name to. He says, This is how we are raised. We grew up in a country understanding that it doesn't matter how our country treats us. Maybe this is bad. Maybe this is good. Maybe there are things we do not like about our government. But, he added, when a situation like this arises, we get up and go. So, that was heavy, obviously, because you'd like to think that someone like that would, you know, if this was America and it was the Vietnam War, men like this would protest, would tell others, would refuse to go. But this gentleman who lost three friends, one missing, one lost their legs, one with a concussion, uh, his reaction to all of it is that he's going to get up and go back. And so it's really just a, it's a lot to take in. And the article talks about uh, Putin's determination to win this war and that he literally thinks he can outlast. The article talks about, as we've discussed in prior episodes, when Russia started the draft and a lot of military-aged men left or departed the country, Putin allowed them to leave because he didn't want those type of men who were not happy with the government to be there. But uh, Putin literally believes he can outlast Ukraine and the West. And so he's going to keep feeding men into this meat grinder against the Ukrainians, and he thinks he can break them. So it's really just an incredible article. In the source notes, if you go to my Substack page, again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com, the link I have there should be a gift link, which means you're allowed to gift so many articles per month, and you should be able to read the entire thing. There's audio, there's video, it's a, it's a really just in-depth article is probably an understatement, but it's just an in-depth project from the New York Times. They call it a Times investigation. And they've got, like I said, interviews with survivors, lots of intercepted communications, lots of documents. There's also some just really horrific parts about a Russian who is, uh, he surrenders. He gets interviewed by the Ukrainians. His name shows up in Western media. And there's later, the New York Times said they actually name him because there's video evidence that this gentleman, upon being returned to the Russians, is killed as an example. And it's not like they just took him out and shot him or hung him. No, in Russian tradition, not that it's a tradition, but at least in this instance, it's just whatever brutality or barbaric method they have at the moment. They put him on the ground. They put a stone under his head. 
and they smash his head with a sledgehammer. And there's video of this on Telegram. Obviously, the New York Times doesn't show this, but they, I guess, to honor his life, they named him. But just, it's really hard as a Westerner who values life the same way you guys do to read some of this stuff and just, it's, um, I'm not sure. It's just, it's pretty heavy. I guess that's all I'll say. But again, if you want to read that article, the link in the source notes on my Substack page, not the one that you'll see on like Apple podcast or anywhere else, but the link in the Substack notes for this edition should allow you to read that. So definitely incredible reporting, very gripping reading. If you want to go take a look at that stuff. I also wanted to share an article from the Washington Post. And a lot of what you you will hear in just the next couple of minutes is similar to what the New York Times reported, but it's a completely different unit. unit. And this article came out just a few days before the New York Times one. So this one involves what's called the 200th Separate Motor Rifle Brigade. It's actually one of their more elite units. They, they guard nuclear submarines. If you ever seen the movie uh, The Hunt for Red October, the port in that movie that is uh, that in theory is, I know it's a Hollywood set, but these troops actually guard that area. And so this unit has actually, its officers have been sent to Syria to help stabilize the front there back when the um, forces that were against Syria's president Assad, when they were taking big-time ground, and it looked like he could fall. Some of the officers from this group went down there to help stabilize things. So this is, at least on paper, a feared Russian unit. So the 200th Motor Rifle Brigade. Again, just like the New York Times article, were loaded onto trains, were told very little about where they were going or what they were supposed to do. They get onto trains, onto flatbeds, but they supposedly have better training, newer equipment, and more experience, including prior combat in Ukraine. Back in 2014, they'd fought on the eastern part in the Donbass region, so this even had some military veterans. So, they're on trains, they get sent to Ukraine. They don't really know exactly what's going on. But there are images online that have been found that show flatbed rail cars carrying tanks and soldiers playing cards. And so that was this unit. They've tracked that down. They've talked to and looked at documents. So the troops were led to believe that they were going to deploy to take drills. And only at 3 a.m. on February 24th were they told there will be shooting. And so they go into Ukraine and they are absolutely decimated. Uh, They were dealing with problems from low food, not enough fuel. They had sold critical stores in the weeks leading up to the invasion. Um, Not sure why they'd sell it. I don't know if that's an issue of just the Russians trying to profit from the way everything is so corrupt there, but apparently they had sold some of their uh, items before even going in. But they went in. They were absolutely decimated of 1,400 plus troops, fewer than 900 were even survived the initial invasion, and then they were sent to this other area and they were attacked there. They were absolutely just crushed. So 
I'm just sharing that because I'm not sure how all this ends if you keep sending troops into a meat grinder. I don't know how effective these troops are, even if Putin keeps saying he wants to win and he's determined to win. This was, <clears throat> excuse me, this was one of their better units, and it was absolutely slaughtered and had very little effectiveness even before their more experienced troops left. They now have mostly replacements, and it's a very ineffective unit that some officers in Ukraine said they're very aware of the unit and they're not at all scared of it. So that's the 200th, and it's very similar to the unit, the Naval Brigade, that the New York Times basically did the historical analysis of for the past few months. So wanted to share that as well. I got a link in the source notes to this article. I have also set this one up so that it's a gifted article. So if you go to the source notes on Substack, you should be able to read it for free. Finally, let's get to that Iran news that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. I've done my best to keep up with what is going on in Iran this past week since the last time I reported to you guys. And the news is kind of all over the place, but above all else, the news is, as always, pretty limited. There are analysts who say there's no way this growing insurrection or revolution will succeed. There's a few who say, actually, they think it might. The truth is, as I've said before on here, no one knows, and it's very challenging to get news out of there, to even know exactly what is going on. But I thought this specific example gives some insight. So we've talked about how at least more than 400 people have been killed in these demonstrations and the interrogations that happen afterward by state forces. And I wanted to share this story about a medical worker that um, died under Iranian arrest. The news source for this comes from Iran Wire. So what is Iran Wire? Iran Wire is it's a collaborative news website. It's run by Iranian journalists who are mostly outside the country. These are people who fled, and they rely on citizen journalists inside Iran who sneak out small snippets of video or uh, bits of reporting that they've done from talking to people. And so there are reporters and there are are activists inside Iran, um, and these people do favor democracy. So they're certainly not pro-Iranian government, but... I feel like it's a pretty fair and balanced website all in all, but I did want to put the disclaimer out on where on what exactly Iran Wire is. You're not exactly going to find a newspaper inside Iran because the journalists would quickly be arrested and probably tortured. But what has ha- been happening and what happened to this lady? Her name is Ada Rostami. She's 36. She was a medic. And when there are clashes with security forces, the wounded protesters cannot go to the hospitals, or they try their best not to, because the Iranian government forces will arrest people who come in with wounds from being beaten with sticks or rubber bullets, etc. And so the government forces are waiting for people to come there, so the Iranian protesters have increasingly not gone there, but they still need medical care. And so what they typically do is they will go to someone's home or somewhere else to get some medical care 
for their injuries. So Ada Rostami, 36, was one of the medics who, these these are folks who, when they're not on shift, they will go help protesters, and they'll go to secret locations, and she had taken care of several wounded protesters in a town called Ekbaton. Don't know much about it, not going to pretend to, um, but she was running out of medical items, such as uh, sterile gauze. That's what a, a source told their family. Uh, so the, she's a doctor. Ada Rastami, 36, left the protester's house to go back to the medical facility to get some of the supplies, and she was never seen again. The next morning, the police call the family, and they say that Rastami had died in a car crash overnight, and they were told to pick up her body at the morgue. And so the family told this Iran Wire reporter, that a car accident was definitely not the cause of her death. Um, the medical examiner told her family that they were ordered not to reveal the true cause of Ada's death. They said that she did not die in a car accident. They killed her, meaning the state forces. The security officers wouldn't even let them, um, only allowed a couple of relatives to see the body, and according to those who saw the body, their hands were broken, um, an eye was gouged out, and it was clear that torture and beating had led to her death, not a car accident. The family also asked to see the car, and the forces, security forces would not allow them to see them. So the town or city of Egbaton lost another doctor, and I just wanted to share that story because it's very illustrative of the challenges that the protesters are going through, even getting medical care. The decisions that even medical workers are having to make, the fact that, you know, it's not like any town has a ton of doctors, the fact that they would kill a doctor so brazenly, all of this is pretty telling. So I'm not sure how all of this ends up going, but I'm glad that the world has people like Ada Rastami, 36, who gave her life to help others. And I certainly hope that the Iranian people can throw off this authoritative government that is so barbaric. Okay, guys, so we will move to the motivation and wisdom part. I wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and I frankly completely disagree, and one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously. But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school, and going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out, and certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or, or to where they probably wanted to get in life, because it's hard to be around people that don't believe that suck the energy out of you or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams, having heroes that I looked up to, whether it was sports figures or past presidents or past military leaders, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days, 
or just some type of leadership event or just some type of really on fire type event and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you and they're like, oh, that won't work or you can't do that, it just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that, you know, people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams. And I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. You know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing, and that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said. So that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. As I say every week, if you want to find these places that I'm quoting from, you can find them in the source notes. And if you want to follow them for motivation throughout the week, you can definitely follow them. And with that out of the way, let's just begin. The first one. Be proud of yourself. You survived the days you thought you couldn't. It's a good one. Comparison will kill you. Be you. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. I love that one. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. Next one, and this is actually a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Strength does not come from winning. Your struggles develop your strengths. When you go through hardships and decide not to surrender, that is strength. It's a good one. Next one, stop losing your mind over people that don't mind losing you. It's a great one. If you don't challenge yourself, you will never realize what you can become. Another great one. Next one. Be consistent, not perfect. I absolutely love that one. And when I'm on my A game, as far as my writing, it's when I'm consistent every day and I'm not worrying about if every line is perfect. I can always edit it later. If you're working on a website, you can always fine-tune it later on any project, etc., etc. Just show up every day, do some work, and you can improve it later. All right, next one. Your future needs you, not your past. I love that one. Another good one. Next one. A person who truly loves you will never let you go or give up on you, no matter how hard the situation is. It's a beautiful one. Probably he will not only uh, help you calm down a bit with uh, your current situation, but it's just a, a good reminder that we all need to Just realize that some things are going to work out on their own, too. And sometimes we just scurry around and run around like little crazy, you know, rats or something, trying to solve all the world's problems and our own problems. And sometimes we just need to relax and realize that maybe that spouse isn't going to leave you over that. Maybe the kid is going to understand. Maybe divine intervention is going to help a little bit. Maybe you're going to catch a break or two that you're not even thinking of. And maybe you don't even need to go that direction you think you need to go anyway. Like Things sometimes work the way they're supposed to, don't they? Alright, next one. You may not be there yet, but you're closer than you were yesterday. Love it. Next one. Dreams don't work unless you do. I think I've shared that one several months ago, but that is one that I absolutely love. 
Next one. You have no idea what you're capable of until you try. There you go. You have no idea what you're capable of until you try. Another good one. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10-plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.com. .substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone, call a friend or a family member, do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide, so I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. I can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because, honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you. So I will briefly describe them real quickly. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but Folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. 
He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action. A couple of cops die before the end of book one, and if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown. Book two is called Gravel Road, and it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what um, the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Acuff, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. Uh, There's plenty of action in it as well, and it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl... Um, is hot, and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I talk about, or I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So it, really, the book is it's it's pretty deep, and so it the, it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish, and will they survive with their honor and dignity? And I think you know, and I've been told this that Soldier On just truly defines what it means to be a soldier to never give up. And then I've also got a realistic war novel about Afghanistan. It's called Hill 406. It's about a couple of Marines who couldn't be more different, and they get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation, and it's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. Um... And then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention just real quickly. And then the final book I mentioned is, actually, it's a part biography, part self-help, all-inspiration type book uh, about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents, what sets them apart, what qualities allowed them to reach your goals where others failed? How can you cultivate those qualities in yourself? And besides that, I also share some things about him that you may not know, such as, throw out a couple. Did you know that before he ran for the U.S. Senate, he was crushed by a four-term incumbent who beat him by a two-to-one margin? Most people aren't aware of that. He also coached his uh, Sasha's fourth-grade recreational basketball team called the Vipers while president. That was not super well-known. And then also, the craziest thing, as he's known for being a speaker, did you know that when he started, he actually wasn't even a good speaker? He admits that himself. So I'll talk about several things I've found out about him as I researched him some, and I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you, kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking, how he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge like two-to-one election defeat that I mentioned above. 
and it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough, and so it's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of um, series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration. It's self-help type stuff. And so, you know, I think you can learn a lot from presidents and I could go for on for probably hours, honestly, about how it's crazy. Some of the people who end up becoming president and the things they do to get there. But again, I won't get into it too much, but that book is called number 44, the traits and characteristics that carried Barack Obama to the top the how he managed to with his name with the background the mixed background the lack of money and the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing i know he isn't liked by everybody but it's an incredible book in my humble opinion so that's called number 44 you can check that out as well and i don't think i said this earlier but you can find all of my books on amazon so just go to amazon and just search for the name Stan R. Mitchell, and you should see a whole list of them. You'll see them all listed, and that's the best place to get them. And that's also why I have to put the R in my name. You'll see there's more than one Stan Mitchell. So way back in the day, I had to do what I never wanted to do, which is put a middle initial in my name, which to me just seems kind of, I don't know, pretentious. But yes, go to Amazon.com, search Stan R. Mitchell, and you will see a list of them. Hey guys, thanks so much. I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.